Can I turn you back to that passage that we read just a little earlier, Exodus 32? Um, we've entitled the message this morning, A Man of Prayer. A Man of Prayer. Let's just unite our hearts together uh, as we come to the preaching of God's Word. We need the Lord's help in preaching. And let's seek his face afresh. Lord, we do uh, thank thee again for the paraphrase and the old hymn that we've been singing. We thank the Lord. We have a great high priest who's seated at the right hand of God, the one who's an unchangeable I am. And, O Father, we pray that thou might, Lord, come and answer prayer for us this morning, for we need thy help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that thou would pour out thy Spirit upon us. Thou would give us understanding even in this passage. Give us help, Lord. O God, bring us into these verses. And we pray, Lord, that I might apply the word, even as it is needed to each and every soul. Lord, to that end, fill us with thy spirit and with power. Give me words that must and shall prevail. Give us those prevailing words, we pray. And may Christ be exalted. May God be honored. We pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen. Already we have seen something of Moses' finest hour in that he interceded on behalf of the people. They who had rebelled against God, they who had broken the commandments of the Lord to make any graven image, and they were also those who plummeted into the most immoral behavior. Yet the compassion of Moses shines throughout uh, these verses. Not as one who denied, uh, denied their sin, not as one who sought to cover it up, not even as one who sought to make little of it, as is so often the case today, Moses doesn't attempt to minimize the enormity of it. He calls it a great sin as he's speaking to Aaron. Moses already can be commended. From a human point of view, he had done what he could for a sinful people. He had averted them from being wiped out from under the wrath of a holy God. He had exhorted for those who desired to be in the Lord's side as he stood at the camp to come to stand where he stood. And now the next day, what he had said to Aaron about their sin, he repeats before the people, he have sinned a great sin. And how solemn it is to note men and women the absence of any recorded word of Israel's repentance. Not a word is said about their contrition. Not a word about the horror of what they had done before God. The rod of chastisement had fallen heavily upon them, but it seems there was no bowing of their heart before it. What follows in these verses are clearly shown to us that he loved the people. Despite their sin. You see, Moses is noted again as a type of Christ. Christ who delivered his people and one who intercedes for his people. He meets with God again, as Moses does, on the mount a second time. He does so not that he could be a substitute for the people's sin. There's only one who could do that. And that is Christ himself because he was the perfect lamb. Moses wasn't perfect. But while he had overseen the removal of a penal judgment and sentence, 
As we remind ourselves of verse 14 of chapter 32, the Lord repented of the evil which he had thought to do unto his people. That is, he had heard the intercession, he had answered the prayer of Moses that first time around. Yet there were still the consequences to what they had done that Moses refers to. And so he comes the second time up the mount and he pleads with God that for it may be that God would be gracious toward them and governing over them. You know, the same is found with Paul as he meets with, or Peter I should say, as he meets with that man called Simon. Acts chapter 8. And you remember how he sought to follow the disciples and he sought to have the same power as them. The thing wasn't in the heart. He hadn't got the matter. Peter said to him, verse 21 of Acts 8, Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Oh, he may have been baptized, but he wasn't saved. And Peter goes on to say in the next verse, Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. It may be that the Lord will be gracious to you, Simon. The difficulty with Israel is that their forgiveness was dependent upon their repentance, which they didn't as yet show. They hadn't showed any sign of sorrow or of repentance. But I want you to note in this all that Moses is seen as a man of prayer. You'll notice, first of all, the devotion of Moses. Isn't it a lovely phrase that we read in the words of verse 31? And Moses returned unto the Lord. In every time of crisis, we find Moses retiring unto the Lord. He returns unto the Lord. And in him we see a picture of Christ, the great apostle and high priest of our profession, who in his earthly ministry ever maintained a perfect spirit of dependence upon the one who had sent him. Could it be that's where one under the sound of my voice needs to get to today, even this morning? Returning to that place of communion. Returning to that place of dependence upon the one who has saved you. And reaching the top of the mountain, his praying indicates great emotion on the part of God's servant. He's forthright when it comes to describing what the people had done. They had sinned a great sin. He had demonstrated that when standing in the gate of the camp and ordering the sword to be used against those who were the nearest and who were the dearest. But despite that, he makes a great plea in their behalf. Because you see, the same spirit that he displayed outside the camp is seen again in his communion with God on the mountain for the people. What devotion, what compassion he had is even indicated by a breaking in the middle of what he pleads and what he says before God. You look at verse 31. Oh, this people have sinned the great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if I will forgive their sin, and in the Bible there's a little dash, he stops in the middle of it. It's charged with great emotion. 
By making atonement, it doesn't mean by any sacrifice offered, but by his prayers, prevailing before God to forgive their sin, to not punish them anymore for it. It's obvious that they were a sinful people. They had offended the holy God. You know, when he speaks there about them making unto them gods of gold, the word there is Elohim. They even used the name of the God of heaven and of earth to describe the the golden calf. Yet he still pleads in verse 32, Yet now if I will forgive their sin, and if not blot me, I pray thee out of thy book which thou hast written. It might please God to forgive their sin by his free grace and for his pleasure. And if not, Lord, if you can't do that, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book, which thou hast written. You will remember, of course, in our study the previous day, the first time that God met with Moses on the mount during those 40 days and 40 nights, he said unto him that he would destroy the people below because of what they had done. And Moses, I will make of you a new nation. And Moses denied that offer. And in effect, he now returns to meet with God and he says, Lord, save them, destroy me. That's intercession at his very highest. There's emotion there. There's compassion there for a sinful people and that he's prepared to offer himself in the place of that people. You see, no sin on their part could alienate his affections and his devotion for them. It really, I was thinking, it's really Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 7, illustrated. Because that verse says, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all of the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be condemned. His love for the people couldn't, couldn't be quenched, despite all that they had done against the Lord. And what a foreshadowing of the only mediator between God and man. For we read that he loved his own which were in the world. And he loved them even unto the end. Notwithstanding that all will be offended because of him. Yea, all, you think of the disciples, they all would forsake him and they all would flee. Yet he loved them unto the end. Romans 5, 8. God commendeth his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Moses was willing for God to blot him out of his book. I know there's various views upon what that book is. I can only understand it to be none other than the book of life of the Lamb. Of God's choice of men and Christ to everlasting life, which is particular, it's personal, it's sure, it's certain. And Moses asked for this, not as a thing either desirable or even possible, but to express his great affection for this people and his great concern for the glory of God. And rather than ever should suffer, he chose, if it was possible, Lord, if it's possible, to be deprived of that eternal happiness he hoped for and should enjoy. You know, that same spirit that we find with Moses in the Old Testament is found again in the New Testament. It's found with the Apostle Paul if you come to Romans uh, chapter 9. 
in the words of verse 3. Romans chapter 9 and verse 3. And maybe just read to you the first couple of verses as well. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not my conscience also bearing my witness in the Holy Ghost. That I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Look at these words in verse 3. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I could wish myself to be anathema. I could wish myself to be damned for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. To the flesh. In effect, Moses and Paul are both saying, if it was possible, it's not, but if it was possible, they were willing to be sent to hell if their people would be saved. Such devotion is only matched and surpassed by Christ Himself. For he offered himself to God as an atonement for our sin. He suffered, he bled, he died, even in the place of guilty hell, deserving sinners, so that they would never go there. And Christ made atonement for sin because he himself was sinlessly perfect. It was at Calvary that atonement was made. Christ bore the curse that we deserve. Why? Because he loved us unto the end. He loved his people. And it was absolutely necessary for there was no other way that sinners could be saved and brought to be at peace with God other than through Christ's atoning sacrifice and death. But reject Calvary and you forsake the mercy of God to your soul. A little children's hymn sums it up. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. Men and women, what you're looking at in Moses on that mount is a little foreshadowing of Christ himself. He's a type of our Savior. Especially in his intercessory ministry. As he prays for his people. And Christ was devoted unto his people that he gave his very life's blood. Let me show you the directive to Moses. It's obvious that by the reply that the Lord gave to Moses that his petition wasn't accepted, at least that part that Moses was willing to be removed from God's book. And the answer that God gives in verse 33 does not mean that anyone can ever be taken out of the Lamb's book of life. He says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Whom God has covenanted from the foundation of this world to be his people. And that people he has given unto Christ to redeem through the blood of his cross. And Christ in obedience when the fullness of time was come came to go to Calvary to redeem them and he was faithful in doing so. That covenant cannot be undone. 
None who are ordained to eternal life shall ever perish. That doesn't mean, of course, that gives us a license to live whatever way we like and to sin. That raises the question, Mark, were you ever saved in the first place? If that is your mentality. But rather, some people may think themselves. They may seem to be written in that book to be among the number of God's elect, but they're not. And they turn out obstinate, impenitent sinners, and they live and die in impenitence and unbelief. It will appear that their names were never written in it, which is basically the same thing as had been blotted out. Psalm 69, the words of verse 28 says this, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. It is in effect an unchanging principle that we find throughout the Scriptures. Because Paul is led by the Holy Spirit to write Galatians chapter 6 verse 7, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Many on that day, the Lord said, will say unto me, Lord, Lord. But he says, I never knew you. That's what he's speaking about. By this answer, the Lord does not absolutely refuse the request of Moses with respect to the people, though he does with regard to himself and the blotting of his own name out of the book of life. It's plain by what follows that he meant to show mercy to the people. Since he gives Moses a direction here as what to do. And if you look at the words of verse 34, you will see it is to lead them on to the land. He says, therefore now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angels shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. It's clear that what they deserved was cancelled. They deserved to be wiped out and wiped off the face of the world. But God spared them. Moses interceded. But it is also equally clear that there still would be the consequences to their sin with the golden calf. They were not consumed. Yet in due time, God would deal with them. That's what you read of in verse 35. The Lord plagued the people. There's no reference to the 3,000 souls that were slain in the camp that we read about even in the earlier part of chapter 32. But rather to calamities, to pestilences. I will come across them at times. The reason being there was no repentance in their part for having provided the materials to Aaron to fashion that golden calf and not only providing but persuading him to do it. So much so that the making of it really is ascribed to them. And they served it. And they bowed down before it. And they worshipped it. And for these things, God, being a just and a holy God, would visit them for their iniquities by way of correction, by way of chastisement. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Child of God, he'll not allow you to go on in your sin. He'll chasten you. Just as an earthly father will chasten his children. 
So our Heavenly Father chastens His children because He loves us. But when God gave this directive to Moses, He not only told him where He should lead the people, it's accompanied with a promise. Verse 34 Therefore now go lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. He would send an angel before them. And though that was a favor from God, yet it was less than what God had granted to them previously. The one who would go with them is elaborated upon in the opening verse of the next chapter. That's why we've forgotten about the chapter division there. We've just read on. Look at the words of verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Depart and go up hence, thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, Unto thy seed will I give it, and I will send an angel before thee. Moses to lead them was to lead them unto the land that he had promised to give them. You'll note that lo, his wrath was in some measure mitigated. And he had so far forgiven their sin, yet he would not cut them off from being a people. Yet he still does not call them his people. Or even that he brought them out of the land of Egypt as he does in the preface to the commandments that they broke. But he speaks of them in a different manner. As a people that Moses had brought out from thence and whom he orders to go on with. They would possess the land. That land that is described in verse 3 as a land of milk and of honey. God, men and women, doesn't renege on his promises. Has God given you a promise last week? He'll hold it. He'll keep it. You bring it back. You pray it back to the Lord. He doesn't go back on his word. Even though here's a people that were unworthy of such a favor. And he says in that verse too, I will send an angel before thee. That's not the angel of the covenant. That's not an Old Testament appearance of Christ as we see in other places. For example, when uh, Abram entertained angels unawares and one of them was God the Son. But rather this is a created angel. For you see verse 3 underlines to us, God himself would not be going to be in their midst. Because they were an obstinate and a rebellious people. The promise was when they reached Canaan that the inhabitants would be driven out so as to make way for their possession. That was the good news for the Israelites. God was directing Moses to leave Sinai, to head for Canaan. They had been anxious to leave, hence the appointing and the making and the shaping of the golden calf, that he might lead us even to Canaan. We read that last time around. And now that departure was at hand. So they were going. But secondly, when they arrived in Canaan, they would have the land for themselves. And what God pronounces as good news indicated that he still was the God who kept his covenant with Abram, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And he was keeping his promise despite Israel's sin of idolatry. Can we not take great encouragement ourselves from that? 
that despite our feelings, despite our sin, God still loves us. And his covenant promises are still sure. Even though we're unworthy of the least of his blessings, we can take encouragement, men and women. The word of God is infallible. It does not fail. And so it can be trusted by his people. You can lean on the promises of God. And you know, the grace of God is beyond our human comprehension or even duplication. Apart from God's grace, and none of us would escape the judgment for their sin. Oh, the matchless grace of God. Here's a sinning people, and they should have been dealt, they should have been wiped off. They had broken that commandment, even in the making of idolatrous idol, even to worship and to bow down to it. But God is merciful, and he's gracious toward them. And he gives this directive to Moses, I therefore go, lead this people unto the land that I have promised to them. I want you to note, however, finally, the disappointment to Moses. If they had received good news, and they did, there's also the bad news. And it was a great disappointment to Moses that was God would no longer go with them in the midst. Look at verse 2. And I will send an angel before thee. I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, and the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite onto a land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in the midst of thee. For thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. This, in effect, was a chastisement upon them for their sin. Israel beginning to realize that there always are consequences to sinning. Moses is to be commended for telling the people both the good news and the bad news. As many preachers fail to do that these days with a concentration only on the love of God and yet there's no mention of God's anger or God's wrath because of sin. How many in congregations are imperiled because of that unfaithfulness. But Moses tells them both that which is good and that which is bad. What this amounts to for Moses and for Israel is a loss. Learn it. Sin always brings loss. loss of God in their midst. The loss of God's presence is something terrible. Indeed it is the greatest loss that any person can experience. The reason for their loss was their idolatry. They had shown themselves unfit for the near presence of God and so God would withdraw himself. God would not grant them his presence in so near, so visible, so respectable manner as he had done before, though he would not utterly forsake them. And you know, that's shown in the most practical manner. I didn't read it this morning. Maybe you would come and read it with me now in verse 7 of chapter 33. And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp. 
afar off from the camp and called at the tabernacle of the congregation and it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of a congregation which was without the camp. Now before the, the tabernacle was constructed you remember how God gave the instructions about that tabernacle? There was this Lesser tabernacle, this lesser tent, if you like. And instead of it being in the camp, it's now removed. It's now removed without the camp. And anyone who wanted to meet with God had to leave the camp and go out to it. And we read later on that the glory of the Lord overshadowed the door. There was a very practical illustration that God was no longer in the midst of the camp. But you know, it was also necessary for him to withdraw his presence. As the words of verse 3 remind us, he says, Lest I consume thee in the way. They were prone to sinning. And their judgment in the future would be wrong. What would be worse if God was in their midst? It would be before his face. It would be committed in his presence. And that would mean immediate punishment to be inflicted. So that by this step, God was both considering his own honor and their safety. If he didn't remove himself from the midst, then for them it would be complete destruction. Understand, men and women, young people, that the greater our spiritual privileges are, then the greater are the adverse circumstances when we feel. There was the replacement for the loss. I will send an angel before thee. You might say a blessing, yes. A blessing to be accompanied by an angel. But an angel is no substitute for God. It is a case of second best. And second best with anything to do with the things of God is something that as believers we ought to avoid at all costs. I have a writer in my study, a book, some books in my study, and that man admits he's living God's second best. That's an awful place to be in. Make sure you're not living in a manner which means that an angel has replaced God in your life. It's no consolation when God departs. The nation, we're told, they were still would go to Canaan. They still would have Canaan. Canaan hadn't changed. It was still the land of milk and honey. But you'll notice something, that even this news didn't prevent them, verse 4, from mourning. The people heard these evil tidings. They mourned. We'll consider maybe that at a later date, what that meant, but learn this. You can have many things in life. You can have money in the bank. You can have the best farm of land in South Armagh and yet still lose the greatest and most important blessing of all and that's God's presence with you. 
Israel heard this man, these words. And Moses said, we're going on to Canaan, that land that's flowing with milk and honey, that land that is covenanted to you. And when you get there, God's going to deal with the inhabitants. Nevertheless, they still mourned. Because God said, I'm not going to be in the midst. I'll send an angel with thee. Dear people, that is a reality that not only as individual believers we should be fearful of, but as a congregation. For if we don't have God's presence in the midst, we just end up going through the motions. Like the churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation. Because you read those churches and where's the Lord? He's outside the door. And he has to send a letter to them to bring them to the realization that his presence is not there. To Ephesus, thou hast left thy first love. Repent, he says. To Laodicea, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Let any man hear my voice. Can I bring it right down to layman's terms? Great material blessings are no substitute or compensation for the loss of God's presence. We can have the loveliest buildings that God has given to us. But if we haven't God's presence in the meetings, we're at a loss. We might think we're rich, but we're poor. Men and women, sin brings mourning, not joy. Verse 4, and the people heard these evil tidings, they mourned. I can't get away from that. Oh, just a few verses earlier in that previous chapter, they were singing, they were dancing around, even the golden calf. But sinning doesn't bring joy brings mourning. Israel were beginning to realize that all their idolatry and playing around was joy that was short-lived. Lasting joy is only to be found in Christ and in obeying his command. Let me ask as I close this morning, I wonder is there gladness or is there sorrow in your heart this morning? Joy, gladness, sorrow I trust as the former I pray that if it's not that you might come even this morning to the foot of the old rugged cross and maybe as a backslider to get back to that communion with God because like the psalmist you've lost the joy of your salvation and God he can restore that to you again and it might be as a sinner. For you know that joy that is everlasting. That joy that is unspeakable. Over sins forgiven. May the Lord be pleased to bless his word. Even to our hearts this morning. For his own name's sake. 423 we'll sing in closing. Page 347, I must have the Saviour with me, for I dare not walk alone. I must feel his presence near me and his arm 
around me throne. Let's stand as we sing 423. God and our Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word this morning. We thank the Lord for this finest hour of Moses interceding even for the sinful people below. And Lord, how He has even prepared that His name might be removed from the book of life. And O God, we pray that we might, Lord, learn even the challenging lessons of what Israel were suffering at this time, how they mourned when they heard these evil tidings. That God would no longer be in the midst. Oh, we pray that we would never depend upon a substitute. We would never be happy with any substitute. But Lord, that we might know thy presence. We must 
have the Savior's presence with us. O God, Lord, don't forsake us or leave us to our own thoughts or imaginations. We, we fear, Lord, lest it would ever be written above the church door, Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed. Lord, that I would come by. Lord, if chastening is needed then, chasten us because you love us. Lord, we just submit ourselves to thee. Pray that thou might speak on to our hearts. Bring those yet backslidden, bring them, Lord, to the foot of the cross. They might, Lord, again have that joy that they've lost out on. Bring the sinner to Christ by thy Spirit, that they might, Lord, know that joy unspeakable and full of glory. Part us now with thy blessing. Go before us the rest of this Sabbath and meet with us again in this house. We ask these mercies in our Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen.